Thanks, Dawson. Sorry? No, I'm not funny. So I don't have jokes. <clears throat> Lisa asked if I had jokes. No. <laughs> All right. Well, as you know, let me see if this will go. Oh, yeah, it will. Well, as you know, for the past month or so, uh, we've been focusing our teaching series here at VEV on evangelism. And that's been an intentional... Um, thank you. That's been an intentional attempt after our series on worship. We did that. We put that pairing together um, quite intentionally because you evangelize what you worship. You can't help it. They go hand in hand. And this is something that I picked up from Wade Pallister, actually. He put it in my head a long time ago that if you want to be a better evangelist, just love God more. And it's true. You naturally talk with people about what or who you love. The analogy is pretty obvious in our everyday relationships. You know, like, I, I love my family. I love Crystal. I love Jocelyn. And so I naturally talk about them when it comes up in conversation. People ask how I'm doing. I immediately think, oh, the family's doing pretty good. Well, I mean, I'd say, I'd say every time I respond that way. But I am self-centered still, so can't help but focus on myself. But the point, you should, you should take the point. And how much more should this be the case... I thought that was Lynn's cell phone for a second. Is what I, that's, that's a new version of a cell phone, the big turtle. That's great. Shell Turtlestein. That's funny. Okay, how much more should this be the case when we reflect on how we have been brought into relationship with the God of creation? That we would naturally want to talk about him. The more we understand what it means to be in relationship with him, to love him. Worship and evangelism are bound with each other. But it is important for us from time to time to open our minds about what evangelism means and what it can look like. And I hope that's what our series has done so far. Because I think, I think here in, in you know, East Van and Vancouver and 21st century, we need to deconstruct some of those caricatures of evangelism that nobody really wants to pursue anyway. And you know, it's this kind of thing. You know, it, it, we're doing this, we're deconstructing this kind of thing so we can rejuvenate our vision for how we can be completely ourselves while also being completely bold in our assertion that people should get to know Jesus. So what we're going to do today is look at very practical ways. I have a tendency to go way out of my head, you know, like just float in the ethereal space of thought. I have a tendency to do that. But today is really good for me because it's all practical. You know, the, the wisdom we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul, based on Acts 17, is quite practical. We're making the unknown God known. Not quite sure where the, the other title came from, but this, yeah, this, this is the title for today, Making the Unknown God Known. We're looking at Paul's example in Acts 17. It's a really interesting scene, and I'm sure that you've, you're familiar with it, so if this is just a review, that's great, as far as I'm concerned. It's interesting because this scene demonstrates the awesome ways that God has already gone before us in making himself known to all people in all places. And it demonstrates that the New Testament version of evangelism is hardly a crusade in which we Christians are the possessors of truth sent to deliver an objective message to spiritual paupers who don't know anything about God. That's hardly the picture we get 
from Acts 17. And I know that none of us actually think that's what evangelism is about. But one of the caricatures of evangelism we're deconstructing, I do think, is quite prevalent. And it makes a lot of us feel like we haven't done evangelism unless at some point we start rehearsing a script that someone else gave us with instructions step-by-step for how to come to Jesus. And depending on the context, evangelism might mean that. But I have good and bad news. The good news is this. The biblical portrait of evangelism is less about message delivery than it is about faithful interpreting. What I mean by that will become clear as we go through this sermon today. I hope. If it doesn't, come talk to me. But suffice it here to say that becoming an ambassador of Christ means becoming an interpreter of Christ. And interpreters are given a twofold responsibility. They're called to be faithful to the original message while at the same time translating it and its meaningfulness into another context. So, the bad news is that this is a lot harder than handing out tracts and calling it a day. Interpreting the gospel on behalf of God is difficult, and it can be dangerous. But it need not be reckless if only we would commit ourselves to learning in humility, which is what we're hoping to do today. Now, I don't think I have to justify that this task is what should animate our life as the church. You know, we've already talked about this in prior weeks, but let me recall to mind 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Can someone else take over while I sip this water? Thank you, Jessica. In other translations, it says, he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Why did he do that? I have no idea. Look at yourselves. Like, why would he do this? It seems incredibly reckless, but in his divine wisdom, this ministry is connected to the very reason we exist. So we should take it seriously. And to get us on our way, I want to start by listening to Paul's own philosophy about evangelism first. We're going to to hear his principle of evangelism. Then we'll move on to the practice as it appears in Acts 17. This is the principle that Paul has already learned so as to interpret Christ faithfully. And it's in 1 Corinthians 9. So the principle. Anybody else want to read? Thank you, Paul. Keep going. Awesome. Try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Uh, 
Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to see this played out in practice in just a minute, this principle of evangelism. But already we should be, have a wet appetite to understand that evangelism is not simply about transferring information about Jesus. Paul's doing way more than necessary if that's the case. You know, who needs to find common ground if all we're called to do is just deliver basic instructions for salvation? Why not just stand on the corner and start yelling at people? Why not just start broadcasting sermons or on TV or handing out tracts? Which, by the way, I, I've never really understood the handing out tracts thing. And it's not just in the Christian context. Anytime someone's on a street corner handing out pieces of paper to every person that walks by, in my head, this is what I hear them saying. Here, you throw this away. Like, you do it for me, would you? You may think people don't still evangelize that way, but they do. Just live down south of the border for a while. Some of you may know I am American. And when I lived in Springfield, Missouri, that a shout out for Springfield, Missouri, Lisa, thank you. You, you went, woo. Okay. Yeah, it, thank you. There you go. Yeah, Simpsons. <laughs> when I lived in Springfield, Missouri, there's a guy who stands on the street corner. Today, he's probably still doing it. Six foot six, both ways. And he's got a sign around his body that says, the party ends in hell. And he stands downtown where all the college guys are hanging out and and just walking around. And if you talk to the guy, he's a really, really sweet man. He really is. He's got kind eyes. And you talk to him and have great conversations about God and faith and the Bible. It's really interesting that his, his, his intro is the party ends in hell. But... I'm pretty convinced he was compelled to do this kind of ministry because he felt it satisfied the demands of evangelism. And I'm mature enough today to admit that God can use that. I I think he can. But my job here today is to encourage us to the biblical idea of evangelism. So if I'm going to stand here and talk about it, then I want to encourage us to be faithful to that biblical model. Even while acknowledging God's grace is huge. So praise that. Praise God for anybody who comes to faith through that guy. Does that make sense? Okay. The terms of the call that we've been given to evangelism have been dictated by our Savior. And that's why this can never look like just transferring information. Our Savior comes to us in a cloak of humility, serving the least, in the form of a servant, humbled even to death. So if we want to talk about techniques of communication, then we must remember that God's communication is always animated by this miraculous love. It's the kind of love that drives us to empty ourselves of what we think we possess for the sake of serving the other. I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. That's the principle. Keep it in mind as we look at the way it plays out in Acts 17. And this is really long, so I need a lot of people to read if you don't mind. Oh, hold on, Peter. The word for that deeply troubled is provoked, as to a fight. Paul was provoked in his spirit. He was riled up. Just remember that for later. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Last one. Thanks. Sorry about the grammar there on 31. There's a, there's a word missing. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So just to make that clear, I want to make sure you know there's a word there I didn't put in. Very interesting. Yes, very interesting scene. It's an awesome demonstration of that principle that Paul described in 1 Corinthians. The principle of becoming all things to all people. And I want to extract from this awesome scene four practical lessons, real practical, from Paul's example that we can adopt so as to become more faithful interpreters of Christ here in our place and time. And I don't mind telling you, I'm taking my cue today directly from Bruxy Cavie's sermon on the same subject in, at the Meeting House in Ontario. We've kind of patterned the entire series after his, his sermon. And if, if you end up being inspired enough to go look up that sermon after hearing me butcher it today, I'll be only too pleased. Just, you know, get that in your, in your wheels. But because I'm a firm believer in giving credit where credit's due, I should show you this is the guy I'm taking my cue from. This real swell kind of guy. Kind of looks, kind of looks like he could be Rob's cousin or something. Huh? Stand up, Rob. Show, show. What do you guys think? Could he be, could he be Rob's cousin? I, thought, I just thought, oh, man, that is great. In any case, four lessons. Thank you, Rob. Self-deprecation earns you all kinds of merit in my book. That's good. I like it when other people self-deprecate. Okay, uh, the first lesson from Paul. Paul knows his audience. 
He observes, asks, and learns in dialogue. Paul takes the risk of entering his audience's mindset and worldview. Our passage starts by picturing Paul with some time on his hands. He's waiting for his friends to arrive, to catch up with him. If you read back just a little bit, it wasn't clear in the actual text. If you read back a bit, he's just been sent away from Thessalonia because the Thessalonian Jews are after him, and he's sent away in haste. So he's waiting for his partners, Silas and Timothy, to catch up. While he's waiting, we get this image of him walking around Athens, getting to know the way of life there, which is exactly what he tells him he was doing when he began his sermon in verse 22. People of Athens, I see you are very religious because I was walking around looking at your objects of worship. And it was obvious. That's important because everything he says to them is tempered by the fact that he's actually exerted energy observing, listening, learning, and developing a sense of who they are and what they're about. Even though he's provoked in his spirit, he doesn't just blast off with a Holy Spirit machine gun and start shooting their sacred cows. In fact, even when it says he was debating with their philosophers, the word that's used there is not that aggressive. There's other more aggressive words that Luke could have used to talk about an antagonistic kind of debate. You know, we hear that word debate and think it looked like two sides really opposing each other, and one's going to win, one's going to lose. But there's other words for that. The The word that Luke actually uses for debate is sumbalo, which means to throw together, to mix it up, to learn and teach from each other's worldview. It's not as aggressive as much as it is they were sharpening each other through their various perspectives. You can tell that's the case because of the way they respond to Paul. Hmm, yes, you're saying some strange things, and we want to know what it's about. So come with us and tell it to the council. Now, if you're from a, a certain school of evangelism, the kind that I, I was raised to appreciate, the kind that says it's not evangelism till you've brought a person to that personal decision for Jesus, then you might think that this whole process of learning and listening and dialoguing is just a form of enticement. Or perhaps it's something you have to do to entertain your conversation partner while internally you're looking for a way to bait them. Because they're so obviously wrong on so many levels, but you don't want to lose them. So you put up with their mumbo-jumbo just long enough till you can set them straight with God's capital T truth. Well, this is a debatable point, but from my perspective, I stand pretty firmly on the side that such an approach is not Paul's attitude. I think his interest in their worldview and, his, and their perspective is sincere because he believes that God has already gone to great lengths to make himself known to all people in a host of ways. So Paul's interest is animated by this second lesson we can learn from. Paul goes to great lengths to find points of agreement believing that the same God he worships is already at work in the lives of every person and culture. This is really important. Because in his sermon to the Athenians, Paul begins to cite from their own philosophers. Uh, Epimenides is one of the guys. There's There's another one as well. But in him we live and move and exist and have our being. That's a citation from their own philosophers hundreds of years before Christ. And he's using their texts in order to set the stage for bringing them to Jesus. The question I'm asking right now at this point is why? Why does he do that? Is it enticement, 
or is it legitimate? Is he baiting a hook for them, or is it true? Has he found a point of continuity between Christian truth and what they themselves have perceived? Personally, I think it's extremely important, and I want to be clear about what I'm not saying here. I am, I am not going to suggest that the spiritual wisdom that's expressed in pagan cultures is worth adopting by Christians for their faith and devotion. That's, that's not the subject of today's talk. The subject of today's talk is about expanding the circle of Christ, uh, you know, missions and evangelism going hand in hand. You know, that, uh, adopting the spiritual wisdom expressed in pagan cultures would be a lot closer to syncretism which is an extremely fun and popular way of smashing together different religious com- commitments into you know, one thing. And it's disingenuous, consequently, to both the originals. It's a hybrid. So I'm not saying we should do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's what Paul was into. I'm saying that Christians, and as Paul demonstrates here, we should have the wisdom to discern spiritual ignorance in the midst of idolatry, and that rather than damn the ignorant, the people, for their genuine striving, we are called to show the idols to be no gods in the light of Jesus. That's our call. That's not the same thing as discrediting genuine striving. This will make more sense as we go on. The desire for God is written in the human heart because humanity is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw all of humanity to himself. This genuine desire for God manifests itself in some interesting ways, depending on your cultural background. And that picture will always be incomplete without the revelation of God in Jesus. You, you hear that? You're nodding? Okay. But incomplete isn't the same thing as illegitimate and therefore damnable. Instead of syncretism, we're looking at subversion. That's what we're aiming for, subversion. That's what we're after, which is always the fruit of a more. More revelation than we had before, so that ignorance is dispelled in the light of God's revelation in Christ. The operative operative question right now is, do we have a theology that recognizes that the God we worship has already been at work in every culture, drawing all humanity to himself? Do we have a theology that can appreciate that as we go about the task of sharing Christ? We'll back up here and, and look at this speech again. So Paul, Paul is brought before the council, and he tells them, Men of Athens, I notice you are religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Isn't that awesome? I mean, even though we know he's been provoked in his spirit, and he's been incited as to a fight. He doesn't start off by destroying their spiritual atmosphere. It's not how he begins. Instead, he's practicing the principle that we looked at in 1 Corinthians of finding common ground with all so he might save some. He has humbled himself. He's entered their worldview and found a point of connection in this inscription to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He comes alongside them and says, you've been worshiping authentically and sincerely, but the picture's not complete. In the words I used a second ago, he has discerned the ignorance behind their idolatry. And he tells them, 
that what he has to share will complete the picture. It's going to fill in those gaps. Now, what do you think about that? Can, can we, do we see things that way? Or is our sense of righteousness you know, so offended that we get disgusted and can't help but let it show in nasty ways, that we can't control our spirit when it gets provoked by the idolatry we see? I believe there's a time for calling that out. But you see the point that's at work here in this principle of evangelism with a culture that had no shared background for common scripture, for common revelation. And I think we often feel like we have to defend God to such a degree that we miss an opportunity to complete someone's well-meant but misled attempt at seeking after God that we worship. Crystal and I went for lunch with one of her friends a while ago. And uh, this is her longtime friend from high school, from grade school. And this girl's dad died had about a year prior to this meeting that we had with her. And um, she was tell us, telling us about how desperately she wanted to talk to her dad again. Because she knew he was in heaven looking down on her. And someone gave her the name of this psychic. And she went. And he said something to her through the psychic. I can't remember what it was now. But you could just, in, in the conversation in the moment, you could just hear the hopefulness that she had in her tone. You know, her desire to transcend the reality she'd been given with her dad's death. She wanted spirit. And in the moment, it was really on my mind. Like, how do we respond to this? Like, how, how are we supposed to respond? Would we respond from a place of provocation where we don't even filter our thoughts as they spew out? You can't think you can talk to your dead father in heaven through a psychic. Don't be such an idiot. You're playing with demons and God hates witchcraft. What are you thinking? Could have done that. Is there another way? I wish I could say the story ended with us acknowledging the sincerity of her seeking heart. You know, acknowledging that and then completing the picture with the reality of spiritual peace that comes through Jesus. I wish we could say that. But in actuality, we didn't really say anything. We just kind of let her tell her story. And I'm looking at Crystal. Crystal is looking at me. And we're just kind of like, more more Coke, please. (laughs) You know? We chickened out, probably for fear of being offensive. And for most of us, you know, I showed that picture earlier of the guy with the sign. Most of us aren't tempted to do that. Most of us, I think, are tempted to chicken out. I'd say that's the greater temptation, to avoid saying anything because we don't want to appear insensitive. Instead of becoming like the guy on the street with the party ends in hell sign, we end up deaf and mute. And that's a terrible thing to do. It's easy, but it's also incredibly selfish, thought of from the perspective of a God who can't wait to share his heart. The reason it's easy is because it's selfish. And perhaps the becoming all things to all people invitation, but perhaps that starts with us emptying ourselves and doing so in such a way that it leads to a true encounter with someone else and the love of God's pursuing spirit, because he's pursuing. He's, he, is, he is a pursuer, the hound of heaven. But he doesn't snowball people, bulldoze them, depending on the metaphor you like more. Bulldozers are tougher than snowballs. Avalanches are tougher than bulldozers. Any other metaphors? (laughs) Obviously, Paul found a third way. 
he finds a point of contact in this statue to the unknown God with its inscription. And he says, listen, you guys are obviously religious. I want to tell you about who this God is that you're worshiping in ignorance. I want to complete that picture for you. So let's move on then to the text. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose... Excuse me, was for the nations to seek after God. His purpose for these nations was to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Perhaps. The the striving is legitimate, though he's not very far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now let's stop there, because this section where Paul quotes their own poets is a natural bridge for us to look at this third lesson we can use to interpret faithfully. It's interesting in this scene that Paul does not use Scripture to build his case when speaking with people who don't hold to the Bible as a source of authority. And you could say, oh, well, that's kind of a silly argument to make in terms of how we should do evangelism because, you know, it's an argument from negation. Like, well, he didn't use Scripture, so we should not use Scripture when we—that's not exactly the correlation. But we have lots of examples of evangelistic ministry in the New Testament. This one stands out is really interesting because of the correspondence to the audience. One of the key reasons this passage is instructive is because it's only one of two examples in the New Testament where we have evangelism taking place to non-Jews, pagans. Most of the examples we have in the New Testament of evangelistic sermons, most of them take place between the apostles and fellow Jews who are Bible believers. The evangelistic encounter takes place between two parties who agree that the scriptures are a source of authority. They accept the Bible as sacred scripture. And so the Christians naturally start with those shared scriptures in order to reason out the significance of Jesus. You know, so for instance, I I give you an example. Early in this very chapter in the book of Acts, we read that Paul and Silas wind up in Thessalonia, where they didn't make any friends. We read that Paul and Silas wind up in Thessalonia, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And what happens? Well, it says, as was Paul's custom. We're told, this is what he normally does. He went to the synagogue service, which also, as as a side point, he does that when he gets to Athens, too. I mean, he goes to the synagogue first, right? He went to the synagogue service, and for for, for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. That's when he goes to Thessalonia. It's really important to recognize this custom of Paul's isn't a tactic either. It's not just a trick. It's not just enticement. It's because Jesus really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament that Paul is making these connections. So, was that too fast? So returning to our theme earlier, what does that mean for us when we realize here in Acts 17 that Paul's doing something similar with the Athenians, But there isn't a whiff about prophecies or scriptures or Messiah language or even the name of Jesus. Does that mean that all of a sudden, now that he's talking to non-Jews, he resorts to tricks and tactics? 
Or does it mean that Jesus really is the fulfillment of Athenian religious devotion as well? Do you see the significance of the question I've been trying to raise several times? I'm wanting to help us recognize that God has truly gone before us into every culture and place and person. And when Paul makes this move here to cite a source of authority for them, the Athenians, it's really instructive that he uses their authority from their culture and their worldview. Um, To make it, I hope, clearer, perhaps muddier, maybe we could say this. Everybody has an Old Testament. And you say, what's that mean? Well, obviously it doesn't mean everybody has the Jewish scriptures. But, just like the Old Testament covenant set us in a context for relating to the God of creation, um, just like the Old Testament prophets filled the Jews with hope for the coming of Jesus without naming him as such, just like the Old Testament law revealed to the Jews the distance between us and God and our need for a mediator, every culture has an Old Testament. Every culture has a text has a set of texts, traditions, and beliefs, and commitments that we as Christians can faithfully enter into as we push these beliefs and commitments farther to the point where we say, this God whom you're worshiping is the one I'm telling you about. Are you okay with that? Really? Because I want to take a second here, because I can hear in my head at least a couple objections to what I'm suggesting. And the first objection that's possible focuses on that Jewish issue. You know, some might object that the reason the Christians started by reasoning from the Old Testament with Jews is actually because there is historical continuity between the people of Israel and the New Testament. The message comes to Jews first. Absolutely. I'm not going to squabble with that because that's what the Bible says, and that's the description we're given in Acts of the, of the habit and the custom of the, of the early Christians within Judaism. But the point of today's text, in my opinion, is that we are invited to expand our idea of what it means for God to go before. That this idea about the the priority of the Jews does not preclude God's universal revelation of himself to all creation. In the manner that Paul discusses in Romans 1, for instance. Is Is this clicking? That since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and his divine nature, these have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. In the spirit of that kind of text, I'm saying that perhaps we should expand our perspective of God's missional activity before the coming of Jesus to include the histories of all peoples. And if we don't allow for this breadth, then how do we explain the way Christianity transcends every ethnic and cultural barrier? Why isn't Christianity culturally and ethnically embedded? Either Jesus is the fulfillment of every human's heart searching for God, or he's not the fulfillment of the God revealed by creation. Another objection I might hear um, to what I'm encouraging us to do is that, isn't it kind of like saying all roads lead to God? Well, I hate to tell you, but they do. At least they will, 
according to Scripture, all roads will lead to God at the end of the age. All humanity will be brought to the judgment seat of God. So there's no question if all roads lead to God. But I am being deliberately cheeky, and I admit there's a serious issue at stake. So uh, the, the serious issue, I think, that I assume is this one. I think what's really at stake in some of our objections and some of our discomfort with what I might be saying, maybe, is the question of whether all roads can lead to saving knowledge of God. Can all roads lead to saving knowledge of God? And on that point, this is the issue as we're discussing evangelism. I hope you'll join me in a resounding, yes, all roads can lead to saving knowledge of God if. All roads can lead to a saving knowledge of God, but only if. We, the church, would take our mission seriously and start doing the kind of evangelism we're called to do, demonstrated, case in point, by Paul here in Athens, in which we enter that road and by the Spirit's wisdom wisdom, demonstrate how every attempt, every road's attempt to find God fails unless directed to the Lordship of Christ. And for want of that kind of evangelism, fueled by that kind of hope. All we end up with is a world of religions, including Christianity, that are culturally embedded and ethnically bound. Have any of you read that story, Bruchko? Yeah. It was really popular for... Um, still popular. I don't have any historical way to say when it was popular. Most popular. I think it came out in the 70s. Is that roughly right? The decade? Okay, thank you. Uh, John nodded, remembering the 70s. Ralph? Yeah, Dan? Okay. Sorry to call you out. It's an awesome book, which I'm going to cite because I have no cross-cultural missionary experience. And there's many of you in this room who should be giving this speech today. However, Bruchko is really good for me to read. And um, it's a fantastic book about an amazing story of Bruce Olson, who is something of a renegade missionary. He feels called to share Christ with the tribe of the Motolone Bari Indians, who, until he came to them, lived in total cultural isolation in the jungles on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. Excuse me. Uh, I think that's a picture of, of Bob, Bobby, not Bruce, on the, on the cover. Uh, one of the Motolones that he gets to know very well, who ends up becoming a linchpin for, for um, sharing the gospel. But the book's about how he finally gained acceptance into the tribe so he could share the gospel with them. He strove for a long time just to understand them. It took him two years to get any de- regular degree of communication with them. I mean, it also took a long time just not to be, um, for them not to try and kill him anytime he got close to the tribe. It took a long time for them to be okay with He almost died from a fever he got from a five-foot arrow in his leg, for instance. Um, it took him two years to get some degree of communication. And by listening and observing, he discovered that they had an ancient myth about their ancestors being distanced from the sun every night when it got dark, and that God lived on the other side of their mountains, and they couldn't reach him. And that myth became the entree Bruce was able to use in sharing the story of Jesus with them. It's an awesome book, um, but I just want to read a bit from, not from the book, but from Bruce's website, reflecting on his experiences. Pardon me. Um, This is really, really good. Too many missionaries, Bruce feels, come with pride, technology, and a set understanding of the gospel, ready to show the people something. In contrast, he knows he has learned as much from the Motolones as they've learned from him, which precludes any feelings of superiority on his part. Perhaps because of that, what he has been able to accomplish as a catalyst has been phenomenal. 
Not only has he communicated the message of Christ to these people within the context of their own images and myths, but he's done it in such a way that the entire tribe, happy to know of the messenger who came to earth to show them the path to the Creator, the entire tribe decided to follow Jesus Christ. Because the Motolones found Christ within their traditional ways, they've been able to preserve their tribal integrity while accepting a revolutionary new concept. This historical moment is not unique in the history of Christianity, in the way it enters and subverts to the lordship of Christ every tribe, tongue, and nation, while preserving their tribal integrity. And with that idea in mind, let's move to the final lesson for the day. We've kind of covered it already, um, so we won't spend much time here. Number four. Paul skillfully avoids any controversial points of disagreement that may distract from his central message. For instance, he doesn't name Adam, he doesn't name God, or even Jesus, until he has the chance to get to the gospel. Let's look at the remainder of his sermon to them. So far, he's praised them for their religious devotion, and he says he's going to help them understand who it is that they worship in ignorance, and he cites their own authorities using their Old Testament, like Bruce Olson did with the Motolones. And he doesn't contradict them in this moment. He finds the truth that as a follower of Christ, he can affirm wholeheartedly. In him we live and move and have our being, verse 29. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Not even the mention of Jesus' name yet. Just that there's a man God's appointed to judge the world with justice. And this man is proved right because God raised him from the dead. The resurrection from the dead becomes the point where people go, Nah, kind of weird. I don't know about that. But that's significant. We could talk about that a different day. Nothing here about the covenant to Abraham or the prophecies of Isaiah or any of that. And as we move to wrap up, I want to deal with what might be some discomfort we feel for the suggestion that evangelism need not even mention the name of Jesus. I want to deal with some of our discomfort. On one hand, I think our discomfort comes from the fact that we don't actually know the gospel that well. We don't know the contours of how God has come to us and what it really means. Because of this, we don't have an intuitive sense about how to discern something that can direct our hearts to God's truth from something that leads to actual indestructible idolatry. This is particularly hard in our generation, in, in this place, where we have such a swath of cultural backgrounds all blended together. I mean, it's, we are born into syncretism here in Vancouver. Like it's one of the hardest things in the world to discern what the actual spiritual climate is, except for open, like Gordy's been telling us from that that um, journal by Douglas Todd. You know, it's, I'm spiritually aware. just want to be aware. Open. You know, like, that's great. If that works, I should try that. Never, I've never been to yoga. I want to, I do, I want to try it. You know, like that attitude, besides that attitude, the, the singularity and the particularity of a particular religion in one place is really unique this day and age. Uh, in the West, and particularly on the West Coast, you know, a city like ours. So that is what makes this style of evangelism that we're looking at today so dangerous. 
You know, it tempts some of us to think that all we are called to do is just insert Jesus into an already existing religious attitude to make it, like Bruxy Cavey called it, the Jesus seasoning. Just put a little Jesus in there. You know, we're tempted to do that and think we've done evangelism if we're adopting some of these principles. That's not good enough, and I hope you've not heard me encourage you to do that. But without a truly Christian imagination, without a redeemed and baptized mind, you know, how can we enter into the worldview of those around us and still maintain the singularity and the particularity of Jesus Christ? How can we do it if we haven't ourselves been washed and baptized and renewed in our minds? with the centrality of Christ and his message and what he's really come to do, the significance of it. How how can we find those points of continuity? We have to be people thoroughly immersed in what this ministry of reconciliation is all about, the humbling of all humanity before the name of Jesus in worship to God. So again, for our own sake, worship and evangelism are smashed together. Um, partly, I would say, this is also, the, re- the reason they're smashed together is also because we ourselves are still ignorant in many ways. You know, the closer we get to God, the more we realize how distant he is from us and how totally unique he is from us. The more we have to learn. This side of eternity, we're still called every day to be hearers of the gospel. Worship and evangelism must be bound together because if they're not, then there's a second problem often at work in our attempts to evangelize. This is where I'll end. I think um, a lot of times we overcompensate for our lack of worship, our lack of intimacy with our Father. We overcompensate that in evangelistic encounters by having an inflated sense of our responsibility in that encounter. We think it's all resting on our presentation. So we have to do it all, the whole package. You have to bring them from ignorance to complete sanctification in one fell swoop. You know, well, don't forget the greatest part of evangelism is that the Holy Spirit is the chief communicator. It's really encouraging. We're merely invited to participate with him in what he actually wants to say. And because of that, we fail to realize that evangelism is not just an activity that sometimes we're doing, sometimes we're not. It's a way of life. God's the one driving the bus. and we're, that, If there's an openness on our part, it should be that, an openness to see every encounter as a potential opportunity for God to start speaking. One thing that happened uh, when I went to Regent, and I, I loved it, was when you go into Regent on the bus every day on the 99 or whatever, it takes half an hour, 45, you get a lot of reading done on the bus. And I was reading some book about art, God and beauty or whatever, and um, this happened several times, but in particular, this one moment happened where I was reading this book about God and beauty, and this um, you know, girl about my age, dreadlocks, piercings, sat down, oh, what are you reading? God and beauty. It was a cool conversation where we just got, you know, in the span of the bus ride, we got to talk about um, God and creation and what, the way creation speaks to us about God and, and uh, you know, what, what groping for transcendence might look like. And uh, it was really cool. It was really fun. And I thought to myself, and this happened frequently enough. I told Crystal about it. She said it happened to her. I thought we could start, like, actually organize a, um, a, a bus missions thing where people just sit on buses all day reading books about God, waiting for people to ask them what they're reading. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be great? get to read all day and, you know, not make money. But, <laughs> no, you need to make money too. So maybe you could be the bus driver who reads all day. No, that doesn't, doesn't really work either. Anyway, God's the one driving the bus. It's right there. Let the chips fall where they will. All we're called to do is be faithful with the opportunities he's given us. 
So, so we haven't finished the, the verses yet. But did you notice the result of Paul's energy? I love it. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. Over. Some said, we'd like to hear more about this later. But some joined him and became believers. Among them was Dionysius and a, a member of the council, a woman named Dam- Damaris, and others with them. You know, some wanted to hear more about it all later. That ended Paul's discussion. Some joined and became believers. Some joined. Pretty modest results from early Christianity's greatest mind. And that's okay. What's not okay, as we move to end, is being is what's not okay is us being okay with the two problems we mentioned earlier. And as we end here, I would love to spend some time just asking for our hearts and minds to be baptized in the truth of the gospel so we can serve God and all people, becoming a servant to all people by acting as faithful interpreters. Can we pray together? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just move in our hearts today. Lord, inspire us with a vision for your ministry, which looks like servanthood. God, you, came, you became one of us, not to be served, but to, to serve, to become a ransom for many. You're our pattern. You're our model. And we know that there's safety and security in following you. So God, just give us hearts that are burning right now to say yes to you, to just surrender more to you more of our ignorance into your revelation, more of the, the sin that, that clouds our, our hearts and minds, to surrender more of that to the light that you've already shown in the darkness. Spirit, we ask for, for wisdom and discernment and knowing how to exude love, the kind of love that expresses itself in self-control, not letting our not letting our our passions get the best of us when we're incited to fight against idols, God, but to be be filled with love that, that looks and seeks and searches for things to affirm, confirm, and let us just be, um, each of us, walking invitations into fellowship with you for the sake of people around us. You're a good, good God. You're the only God. And as we worship you in this place, fill our hearts with an evangelistic zeal, God. Not the kind that destroys people's spiritual atmosphere, but shows its true nature. That unveils the clouds that that Satan wants to put over every heart that seeks for you. Make us zealous to, to call out darkness from the spiritual source, rather than damn the ignorant. Or give us boldness to, to tear down those principalities that want to keep you and your revelation clouded and darkened. Give us boldness to do that while at the same time loving and serving our neighbors. In Jesus' name.